Well, it's been a while, but we're going to go back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to get this first portion of the Sermon on the Mount completed as best I can here. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I I do, do want to tell you this is going to be an adventure. It's going to be something that we will be able to look forward to week after week and uh, knowing that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is something that's going to be able to touch us each and every time that we study it. Uh, it's going to take us a few months to get through this, but um, this is, I believe, one of the greatest portions of God's Word. Uh, I believe that, obviously, it is the best sermon ever preached, and it's one of the best portions that, we've, um, that you can ever, ever really get to study. In preparation for this, I went back and I looked at Pastor John's and when he started preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Does anybody have an idea of when that was? 1978. Well, when he got to this portion, 1978. 1978. Do you know the building that's right across the way here, if you cross the hallway here, was not even here yet? No, that that didn't get built until I was in seminary, and that was not until 1986. So that building wasn't even here yet. As a matter of fact, you think about it, the worship center wasn't even completed yet. That's how long ago it was that he set the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount and the hearts and the minds of those folks that came to Grace Community Church. In 1978, I'm going to believe that there's quite a few of you who weren't born yet. Raise your hands. Go on. It's okay. Look at that. I weren't even born yet. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> you gotta tell, I can't tell you how that makes me feel. <laughs> it's like the first time I looked at an application to become a, a, my secretary, and, and, and the gal graduated after I graduated. I mean, the gal was born after I graduated from college. How does this happen? 1978, I wasn't even a Christian. I was still back in New York City, uh, and I was uh, selling shmata. That's uh, fabrics, folks, in the Jewish textile industry. That's what we called it with shmata. Not that I was Jewish or anything. They called me the token goyim in that industry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my boss couldn't believe that uh, an Irishman could sell like a Jew. So... <clears throat> When there's enough incentive, when there's enough incentive, you can do almost anything. What an incredible time it must have been, though, to be here at Grace Community Church to hear the preaching of these messages. What an incredible time for this church. John MacArthur hadn't even been in his ministry for 10 years yet. Put that in perspective. It's still, he was below 10 years of being in his ministry. 1969 is when he started here. So we have all of this around it, and we're coming back to it once again. But as we start this very, and I want to call it this, exacting, exacting portion of Scripture, I want you to understand that I'm not trying to get anyone saved by doing good works. Because we're going to talk about a lot about good works here and what is necessary and those kinds of things. But this is not in order to get someone saved by doing good works. You can't do this. It's impossibility. Unless you already have the Holy Spirit resident in your heart and in your life. He's the one who produces those good works. 
The reason and the only reason that we even come close to doing some good on occasion, and that's even for us Christians, is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus does it. The Holy Spirit prompts us. Beloved, without the Holy Spirit already resident, these Beatitudes are impossible. There is no way that we could do these kinds of things. There's no way we could perform these things. In actuality, the doing of them to any insufficient degree only condemns us even more. I mean, let's say back in 1978, I'm in New York City, and I try to become a nice guy, and I try to be kind to other people, and I try to be merciful towards other people, and I try to do all those things. It's, it's just garbage, because it's done with the wrong attitude. It, it's for me. It's not for him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, but a natural man, that's the unsaved man, that's the unregenerate man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. The uh, unregenerate man cannot understand those things. Even if he reads his Bible, even if he reads the Bible, he can't do them. It's an impossibility. Now, that's why I struggle sometimes as a counselor, when I'm working with people sometimes that are just having a difficulty in being obedient? Why, wait a minute, I don't understand that. How can you just not be obedient? If you've got the Spirit of God in you and the Holy Spirit is working in you, then you should automatically be able to be obedient, right? I mean, that's, that's my next conclusion. You know, it's like for the husband, love your wife. That's what it says, Ephesians 5.25, love your wives. Wait a minute. You're not doing that. Or the wife, you're not submitting to the husband and those kinds of things. It just seems very easy to be able to do those things. But at the same time, without the Holy Spirit, it cannot happen. Even though you may be capable of some outward conformity to biblical standards, you are incapable of loving God or your neighbor with your whole heart. It's impossibility. One commentator put it this way, quote, the commandments of the Sermon on the Mount are not to be viewed as laws that must be kept in order to achieve salvation or as requirements for becoming a child of God. Rather, the commandments define the character and the conduct of those whom God has already proclaimed as his children. These, they describe the holy life that necessarily results from genuine salvation. You see, to claim to be a Christian means you're supposed to act like a Christian. You're supposed to do as a Christian does. That's what that's saying. That's what the Sermon on the Mount says. The Sermon on the Mount is actually the fundamental elements that make up the believer. That's why I use this so often in my counseling is because these are just fundamental things. These are not difficult things. Really? Lloyd-Jones said this about the Sermon on the Mount. I got to tell you, his, his two books that he has on the Sermon on the Mount are just absolutely incredible. He said this, quote, It is not merely a description of some exceptional Christians. It is his, that is Jesus' description of every single 
Christian. Now, folks, I don't do this to make anyone feel guilty. Believe me, I have to go before the Lord on this myself each and every day. It's not here to make us feel guilty. Yet this shows, frankly, the poverty of ourselves. That we are in poverty when it comes to the things of God. We can see how short we fall before God, before his standard. It's an impossibility. That's why you need to fall on your face and say, God, give me your spirit. God, I repent. I put myself there. You do what you need to do. Westminster Confession, which is from longer before I was saved, says this, quote, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from an heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end for the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make God to meet a man to receive grace. That they are negligent and they are sinful if they don't do them. You see, the unbeliever is incapable. They've got a battle going on. They may want to be nice and kind and things like that, but it's an impossibility. Let me tell you about this situation. I had this husband and wife come in for counseling. One was professing Christian. The other one was not a Christian. Okay, we're going to call them one a believer and one not a believer. And, and through my time of counseling, I said, well, this is what you have to do. You have to submit to your husband, and this is the way you do it. You have to respect your husband. I'm just coming out of Ephesians 5, 30, uh, uh, 5 uh, 25 through 33. And I'm telling her all of these things, and, and I said, but it's impossible for him. He can't do it. And for three weeks, I keep telling him he can't do it. And he goes, well, wait a minute. When are you going to tell me I can do it? I said, you can't do it. You're not a believer. Only a believer can do these things. She couldn't wait till I got to tell him what to do. I want you to know that. It was very patient on her to wait three weeks. And he said, but what do I need then? Oh, you need the Holy Spirit. You need God. It's the only way it can happen. That's what I'm saying about the Beatitudes. You can't do these things. You can't be these things unless you have the Holy Spirit. When trying to do the Beatitudes on one's own effort, your religion is abominable. That's what it turns out to be. It's truly ugly. And, and, and it's for show, and, and it's not by faith. It's not for the glory of God. It's not for the good of others. It's for you. Friends, to stress just outward change, you're dealing with morality alone. And morality alone only leads to pride. That's all it shows us is pride. That will lead to what Jesus condemned in Matthew 23, 25, where it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you can clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. 
That's what happens. You look good on the outside. And folks, I've seen that happen. Where somebody takes very good care of the outside. That they do their specific duties and things like that. And they, they show up for church all the time. But what's going on on the inside is not happening. It's not going on. This is, is a condemnation for, for the pride and the self-righteous attitudes of those who think they are clean, but in actuality, their attitude alone condemns them. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, so why don't you look there with me? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read that so that it leads us up to where we're going to be today. When Jesus saw the crowds, here he is, he's doing miracles, and the crowds are starting to come because they want the free food and and they want the free healing. He went up the mountain, okay, and we talked about that. It's not really a mountain, it's just really a a pretty good-sized hill. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the 12 are coming around him. He opens his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, this particular word blessed here, makarios, in the Greek actually means happy. That would sound kind of funny for us in the 21st century here. Happy, saying these kinds of things. This is not a happy world that we live in. But blessed, okay, is what it's talking about here. This is not like going to Disneyland. This is not like having 2020 over and being happy about it. Jesus Jesus does not say, blessed are those who live in Beverly Hills. Blessed are those who make it in Hollywood. Blessed are those who cheat and get their kids in Ivy League schools. As a matter of fact, your education doesn't mean anything when it comes to blessing. Blessing is not the subjective feelings one may have because of their circumstances. That is a hollow notion of blessedness. Here, folks, one simple verse in our Bible gives us the realization of our happiness. It's it's the realization of my happiness. But God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while yet sinners, Christ died for us. I, I was a wicked man. And Jesus Christ stepped in and stopped the wickedness, stopped the wicked man. You see, the blessedness comes by being in Christ, period. If nothing else happened, that would be all that was needed. To be blessed is not like hitting the lottery or the Irish sweepstakes and not having to pay taxes. That's not blessedness. Blessedness is the most glorious contentedness you can ever have because you are in God's will. That's blessedness. But who gets there? Who is able to be there? I want you to listen with me to something that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Would you, would you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 
Paul is going to give a description here of those who are taken out of the world. And, and I hope you can all say an amen with me when I get finished with this. You don't have to say that, but that's what I want you to do in your mind, in your heart. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul does this. He says, for considering your calling, that's those who are elect, God calls you, okay? He calls you. You, you don't make the step. As a matter of fact, when, when I came to Christ, I was running in the other direction. I didn't want him. As a matter of fact, I told my wife, I said, I just listened to that preaching and, and I know what that means. I don't want it. I want to keep having fun. And realize my fun was putrid compared to the fun, the blessing that you can have in Christ. But for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen, listen to this, foolish Bill, foolish George, foolish whatever you are. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. <clears throat> he chose the things that were base, ignoble. He chose the things that have no nobility, have no wisdom. That's what he did. So that he could show them and nullify what they think is important. Why? Because it says in verse 29, so that no man could boast before God. None of us get to boast before God. You chose me because I was so cute, right? You chose me because I was so intelligent. No. You chose me because I was so rich, right? No. Because you were nothing. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 28, it says the things that are not, these are the know-nothings. They have nothing, they know nothing. That's what is actually said there in the Greek. There's no nothings. That's what he chooses. Jesus chooses. He plucks us out of the cesspool of life, and he makes us his. Just in case you were wondering whether this is really election or not, look at verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Just in case you didn't want to believe it. By his doing... You are in Christ Jesus. You had absolutely nothing to do with it. Some people find that so hard. I was at a conference once, and a fellow was sitting across from me, and he was a free will Baptist. And I said, can you help me understand what that means, free will Baptist? And basically, it means that if I got him angry, he could lose his salvation. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, you mean you can't confess? Oh, yeah, I can confess my sin again, and then I, I'm saved again. Do you have to get rebaptized? You know, I mean, it's just so many things. No, folks, if God saves you, it's done. <clears throat> You're his. You've been purchased. He plucks you out of that. He takes you out of that. This life given by God 
is not trying to attain the most things. No, Solomon even declared that back in Ecclesiastes. And the great king of Israel, he had so much and he kept attaining more and more and more. Ecclesiastes 2.11, you don't need to turn there, but you can jot it down if you want. It says this, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. Makes me think of John D. D. Rockefeller. Back in the day, okay, when he was a mogul and making lots of money, he's got more money than he needed. He was the richest man in the world. As a matter of fact, even today, he'd still be considered the richest man in the world. People haven't even come close to him. And somebody asked him this question, how much more do you need? Just a little more. Just a little more. Folks, he died. And folks, he took none of it with him. He died and he took none of it with him. I I don't believe that he laid up treasures in heaven. I think we would have seen that in his life. But you're doing that. You're doing that. Blessed means to be poor of spirit. The poor in spirit does not mean to be shy or or to be nervous or to be cowardly. Uh, It has nothing to do with your personality whatsoever. It has all to do with your standing before the Messiah. It has all to do with your standing before the Messiah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Go back to Ephesians. um, I'm sorry, back to Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Folks, plain and simple, plain and simple, this means you realize your desperate spiritual condition. On that day in in October 1982, I realized my spiritual condition. I realized that I was empty. I realized I was chasing after bubbles. I was chasing after something I could never achieve. <laughs> By God's grace, there was a woman at this show in Montreal, Canada. I was doing business in Canada at the time. And uh, I got saved in Canada. So, interesting. And she presented the gospel to me. She's with the Lord now. I know that. It's got to be. And you know how she did it through the book of Revelation? How would you ever do that? But that attracted me because I used to read science fiction. I thought it was science fiction she was talking about until I realized, oops, no, repent is at the end of this. (laughs) And then I asked her this question while we were in Montreal, Canada. Do you know of any churches in Southern California? I happen to be there with my family. She says, I only know of one. Guess what church that was? Grace Community Church. Guess what church my wife was going to for a year? Grace Community Church, and I didn't even know it. Folks, you realize you're poor in spirit. You have nothing. You're empty. 
you realize your desperate condition. You become aware that spiritually you are bankrupt. You know that you're totally and absolutely dependent on God. You realize you come to God naked, empty-handed. You are no longer full of self. The problem, folks, for us is us. It's self. That's where the problem lies. It's inside us. I want. I want. Give me. Give me. Salesman in the Boston and I were competition for the number two spot in the company for most sales. And we call one another up and, and our mantra towards one another was, gimme, gimme, gimme. That was our mantra. That's how base and low you are. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And we weren't, you know, it wasn't strong competition like that, but it was just, that's ugly. You see, when you come to Christ, you're emptied of your self-confidence. You're emptied of your self-importance. You're emptied of your self-righteousness. This Christian is very aware of their sin. They become aware of, of how despicable it is. It, it begins to show in their life. They see it. They now become entirely dependent upon the Lord for his grace, for his mercy. Some said that uh, they become beggarly here, destitute of spiritual wealth. They are bereft of self-righteousness. They, they have come to an end of themselves. Folks, that's the poor in spirit. These are the people who realize that they are nothing of themselves. These poor people have only God to trust in. And folks, look around. That's all you have to trust in, is God. The poor people have only God to trust in for their salvation, so they cry out for grace. Give me grace, I need it. They can't perform things like a priest or bow down to a crucifix or anything like that. They need God's grace. Beloved, when you came to know Jesus Christ, there was first a coming to know that you were a sinner. When somebody tells me that they came to Christ, but they didn't know they were a sinner, they didn't come to Christ. You have to realize that you have nothing. You're only bringing that sin to him. <clears throat> and being a sinner, you are an enemy of God. Now, I would never, ever have thought that I was an enemy of God. I was a good Roman Catholic boy. I even was an altar boy. As a matter of fact, I was the president of the altar boys. Wow. Achievement after achievement. I even knew it in Latin. Well, it must have meant something, right? It did the Stations of the Cross. I was empty, completely empty. I was a sinner who hated God. But I had no idea, and you may not have had any idea, that at the time you did hate God. 
the blessing that comes is at the realization that there is nothing good in you. Yet God reached down and saved you. He saved your sin, sick, soul, anyway. Blessed are the poor in spirit. By the gospel writer adding in spirit, by Jesus saying in spirit, it gives the idea that this person has truly and actually come to know their poverty. One commentator put it this way, the poor in spirit are divorced of self. They've laid aside self. It's not them anymore. It's God. Jesus, therefore, is only speaking to the believer here. This can't be the unbeliever. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes, the unbeliever may have heard the words, and there were people around them that probably did hear the words, just as you're hearing the words today, but they're hearing them and they're not taking them in. Those are two different things. Some people sit in the auditorium for years and listen, hear them, but they don't take them in. They may even have conviction on occasion, but by the time they hit the door, their conviction is gone. This is not someone who has confessed his allegiance to Christ one day and gone back to his sin the next. When I was baptized in 1982, um, I was baptized with another man, and we became quick friends uh, the next Saturday, we were out do, going door to door. I mean, it was just something we wanted to do. We're up in Northridge. You're just knocking on doors and witnessing. He was the kind of guy who put his foot in the door and wouldn't let him close the door. <laughs> I said, look, I, I have a little bit of a sales background here, and uh, that's really obnoxious, okay? And, and that's not going to win friends. You need to take your foot out of the door. He was really, okay. <laughs> Eventually, we stopped. I don't know how long it took. We stopped, and I get a call from his dear wife, and she says, uh, Eric is back in the bar. Eric is back to drinking. Eric is back to partying. I tried to find Eric. I tried to get in touch with Eric. I tried to do all kinds of things. I was not going to go in the bar, number one. Okay, but I tried to talk to him. He walked away from the Lord. Folks, he heard the words. He had some sense of conviction, but he never took it in, and it became his, and he lived it. He destroyed his testimony there, obviously. I don't know if he's ever come back. I mean, obviously, you can do that. You can repent. As you'll see from the study of Beatitudes, this initial Beatitude really is the starting point. It's like you're, you're on a, on a, in a race and you're getting down in a three-point stance and you're going to be taking off. It's the starting line. This inaugurates the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ. This is where it happens, that you come to the point in your life that you realize that you're poor in spirit, that you have nothing in yourself and that you need Jesus Christ. You realize your poverty. You know what? There's this passage. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. 
where we can see it so, so, so clearly here that this is, this is without, without question in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And it says there in Luke 18, verse 9, it says that, and he told this parable, this is Jesus speaking here, this parable to some, listen to this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. They went to church. Okay, let's put it in that vernacular. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Well, a Pharisee is going to be seen, what, as a religious person. He's got the garb on for it. You know, he's acting like a Pharisee. And then you have this tax collector. They're the worst scum of the earth. The worst of the worst, a tax collector. Used to have a friend in here who was an IRS agent. <laughs> I, I would pick on him once in a while with these kinds of things. It was fun. One a Pharisee. And what a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like this swindler over here at Anchored. I'm not like this unjust person over here at Anchored. I'm not like the adulterers. I'm not like even this tax collector. He's over there. He's got his arm giving himself a pat on the back. And he's giving himself a high five. You are You are good. Before God, you are really good. Then he goes through what he does. I fast twice a week. I read my Bible every day. I spend at least 10 minutes. I pay tithes of all that I get. Yes, I give my 10% every other week. All of this kind of stuff. That's what he's saying. I go to Sunday school. I even go to the best one, Anchored. But the tax collector, and I love this guy. I love this guy, even though he's a tax collector. He's standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. He noticed how much he didn't have. He, he couldn't even lift his eyes up. The tax collector standing distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. He knew how sinful he was, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Poor guy. He had a poor self-image, didn't he? Yeah, he needed a self-esteem boost here or something. I don't know. But no, that's not what it was at all. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to the house justified. I love that. Justified right there. He was saved because he re realized how much poverty he had. He had nothing. He was bankrupt. And he realizes it. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference in spirit of these two men is profound. I hope you see that. 
difference of spirit. The Pharisee is self-reliant. He's, he's done it all himself. He didn't need anybody else, didn't need anything else. He was his own man. I don't need anybody. He's a type A kind of person. The tax collector, as a sinner, relies what? Upon the king. He realizes he has nothing. He brings nothing to him. The Pharisee had pride in his works. He, he, he looked at all that he did, and he saw that it was good. He didn't see himself as a sinner before a savior. The Pharisee saw how sinful he really truly was. Even though he was going to do the same thing, going up to the temple, he was without. The Pharisee had pride. The tax collector had humility. The tax collector had no dependence on himself, but he had it on God. He knew he was polluted. He knew he needed salvation. He knew he needed God. Don't turn there, but you can listen to Isaiah 66 too. It says this. It, it gives us a picture of, and I hope you're in here, of a man or a woman who is God is looking for. This is what God is looking for. If you're not already there, this is what God is looking for. And Isaiah 62 66 2, it says this, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. He trembles at my word. Folks, as we go through the Beatitudes, we, we ought to be trembling at God's word when it talks to us there. Of some of the things that are there that are very evident, and we are bankrupt. This is God's kind of man or woman. You read God's word and you're profoundly in awe of the standard that your Savior has and yet he has still saved you. I tell you, sometimes I wake up in the morning and pinch myself. Why? Why did you do that? Then I get into the office and I go, how in the world did you get here? There is no pathway from selling fabric in New York City to, to getting to Grace Community Church and getting saved. God has to do that. John MacArthur said this, Where self is exalted, Christ cannot be. Where self is king, Christ cannot be. Until the proud in spirit become poor in spirit, they cannot receive the king or inherit his kingdom. Because, folks, that's what it's about. The poor in spirit shall inherit the kingdom of God. So if you haven't gotten to the poor in spirit, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Because that's what it says here. Matthew continues this initial beatitude with, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's incredible. Folks, how many times the kingdom of God comes up in, the, in Matthew and the, and the Sermon on the Mount? It is incredible. The use here of the present tense verb, though, indicates this, folks, that believers are already in that kingdom. That's what it's saying. You're already in that kingdom. You've already received it. 
It means it's already existing and it continues to exist, but it continues to exist in you. Friends, the promise of the kingdom grammatically is now in the present tense. The kingdom was inaugurated even though we wait for its consummation. We have it, but it's not quite there. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? You have it because you have a relationship now with Jesus Christ, but it's not quite there because you haven't seen him face to face. Your faith has not become sight yet. Well, that's going to happen someday for each and every one of us. Don't look around this world. This world is not the final kingdom, folks. Look inside. Look inside for what and where the kingdom of God is. How is it working in your life, this kingdom of God? Your heart, your hope, is your life with Jesus Christ? And I don't mean just on Sunday. I don't mean just on Sunday morning and maybe on Sunday evening. I don't mean just maybe when you're at Bible study. No, no. I hope you don't mind, Kim. But I, I did Kat's service yesterday. She went home to be with the Lord. You visit that woman. She couldn't wait. Get me there. But at the same time, she has her family here. Her sons, her husband, that she wanted to be with. She knew the kingdom of God. We talked about that. She lived it right there in her living room on that bed as she was dying. But there was also something more to come. And she looked forward to that as well. What a blessing. It was a blessing to be with her. I hope you have that hope. I hope you are looking forward to that. You see, when Jesus began preaching back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he said this, repent. If you haven't repented, you don't know Jesus Christ. Repent. And I'm, today is the time. You don't know how much more time there's going to be. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he says. Repent, it's here. Jesus is not a liar. He was declaring that the kingdom of heaven was real and it was about us. It was actual. It's even now for those who believe. Beloved, the gospel saves and promises at the same time. It saves and promises at the same time. Let me suggest that when the church does it, or is it, let me put it that way, the Sermon on the Mount attracts the unbeliever because they can't believe people live like that. They can't believe people do those things. There's something different about them. How, how can they be nice like that or, or merciful or kind or whatever it is? What well, profoundly all about Jesus the more in you, that you and I are like Jesus Christ, the more we are unlike this world. And I got to tell you, I want to be as unlike this world as possible. By the way, I got a divorce last month. 
Yeah, I divorced Facebook. I, I just, it just gets me sick. You know, you get on there, I just waste my time. Waste my time. That's not a bad divorce, folks. It's okay. I can, I can still be an elder at Grace Church. <laughs> we want to be more like Jesus Christ. We want to be more unlike this world. I don't mean we become hermits and detach ourselves and move up to the mountains, you know, some people trying to escape to Idaho and those kinds of things. No, believe me, sin will find you there in Idaho. So how do we get there as we're looking at the poor in spirit? I've got a few things that I, suggestions that maybe you can start to think about. Number one, realize you are incredibly blessed in Jesus Christ. That's what you have to, you have to start there. You have to start there. You are incredibly blessed in Jesus Christ. I, I thought I had a great life. I thought I was making a ton of money and I was, but that was not happiness. That was not blessedness. Number two, it began at your realization of your need of the forgiveness of sins. That you realize your poorness of spirit began when you realized your need of the forgiveness of your sins. Profound need for the forgiveness of sins. Number three, embracing your poverty and your need of the Savior. That you can't do it on your own. You know, some of us, you know, think we can do whatever we want to do, you know, and I'll get it done and that kind of stuff. No. Embrace it. Number four, looking currently at your life as kingdom living. How uh, is my kingdom living going on right now? Does it look like kingdom living? Um, I've done enough counseling around here, enough situations. I mean, I've had some people say, could you please have somebody wire our house so you can actually see what goes on in it? I said, I don't, I don't need to do that. God's already done it. I mean, he didn't place any wires there, but he knows exactly what's going on in there. Either you're living kingdom living or you're living for whatever you want. You say whatever you want. You do whatever you want. That's kingdom living. When Jesus Christ is sitting right next to you as you're sitting watching your television. All of those kinds of things, that's kingdom living. And number five, that the rest of the Beatitudes will prepare you for kingdom living. I think it was... I actually believe now that I'm thinking about it, and as I'm saying this enough, that John wrote a book about kingdom living, one of his earlier books. It probably came out of this study. Folks, God loves us. Yeah, think about it. Romans 8.1, in while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And I think about how much I can be condemned for. And yet my Lord and Savior saved me. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us, Lord, reaching down. I pray for those that are here, Lord. I pray that they would check their hearts, especially today. Today is communion. Today's a day when we're supposed to examine our hearts. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith or, or did you not know. Lord, we, we need to take those things and, and begin to wrestle with it to make sure that we are children of God. Because you loved us and sent your son, Jesus Christ, for us. Dear God, I pray for this class that we continue to grow in health. I pray that we grow in our spiritual walk with you. In your name, amen.